Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Three Chords and the Truth is how legendary songwriter Harland Howard once described country music. What about the uneasy truth of who's been excluded along the way? Today, we're bringing you a rebroadcast of an episode from last April, all about inclusion in country music. We'll talk with the founder of the Black Opry, a home for Black artists and Black fans of country, blues, and folk. And we'll dive into the history of this genre that time and again has doubled down on whiteness. But first, we're picking up on the latest fallout from country star Jason Aldean's music video for the song Try That in a Small Town, which has been widely criticized for racist themes and imagery. After blowback, country music television pulled the video, setting off waves of contentious discussion online and beyond. Yeah, you think it's tough. Well, try that in a small town. See how far you make it down. WPLN's senior music writer Julie Height is here to dissect what's going on. Julie, welcome back to This Is Nashville. Thanks for having me, even if it's for a, a tough topic. Yes, a tough topic indeed, but it's always good to have you here. Okay, so, you know, if the song itself has been out since May without generating much of a response, what was it about the video that grabbed attention, not only in the country music world, but well beyond it? Yeah, I mean, on its own, this song already felt pretty menacing and combative in the way that it addressed a very familiar country trope, which is that of, you know, songs that celebrate rural or small town ways of life. But I think it mattered that it was coming from a country hit maker who had already begun in recent years to communicate his stances in some pretty unabashedly belligerent ways outside of his music. I mean, you might remember last year that he seconded his wife's transphobic social media post, and he was sort of openly taunting a fellow country star, Marin Morris, who took issue with the messages that they were spreading about trans youth. So I think that for many who were aware of the song back in May, it seemed kind of in step 
with where Jason Aldean, you know, with his present day persona, what he was already kind of saying and doing and putting out there. But then he paired it with this music video that was filmed at a location with really, really well-documented history of white supremacist violence, the lynching of a a young black man named Henry Chout in the 20s in a white mob attack on black residents in the 40s and other other history as well in the in the area. And the video itself, you know, also treated footage of Black Lives Matter protesters encountering police as though they were engaged in unpatriotic activity for doing that um, activity that should be punished, the video implied. And I think that combining the song with all of those visual signifiers just multiplied the effect uh, that it registered, you know, just intensified the message and that is what really drew the video into political discourse not only in Tennessee but well beyond our state. So how do you interpret the song and the video? I mean sonically I feel like it's sort of what you typically hear from a Jason Aldean song because he is much more about force than finesse as a singer you know he sings like he is one big clinched singing over kind of a southern accented new metal attack and it's the song that you know not only praises small town american life but really emphasizes this cultural and political dividing line between the rural and the cosmopolitan and most importantly portrays small town life as though it is inherently morally superior as though there there's no trouble it's just free of crime except for what outsiders bring in from the city and the racial implications of that are also very evident. I mean, the lyrics are implying that these small towns are morally superior, partly because they are supposedly bastions of whiteness. And a colleague of mine, Amanda Marie Martinez, wrote a great essay for NPR Music that I highly recommend reading that gets into the longer history of those kinds of stories and attitudes and references really across across the scope of historical, commercially recorded country music. But, I mean, this song is actually different from different in tone and implication from songs that Jason Aldean himself recorded way, way back in his career that were dealing with, you know, celebrating or defending small town or rural life in very different ways. So we can listen to a 2010 single, Flyover States, where we hear him kind of addressing how their dismissive attitudes from the outside looking in on, you know, working class people in farming areas and rural areas, but doing it just in a very, in a way that feels very different. Miles and miles of back roads and highways connecting little towns with fun and lanes. They've never drove through Indiana Met the man who plowed that earth Planted that seed Busted his ass for you and me You're caught a harvest moon in Kansas But they'd understand why God made those flowers So, you know, that, that song that we just heard compared with this new song and video, there's just, I think, a huge, huge difference in how they land. In Flyover States, we hear Jason Aldean 
you know, expressing admiration for those kinds of communities and that they have value, um, you know, even kind of teaching people that are at a, that are looking in from an outside perspective about the value and showing them the beauty of the landscape, but doing that without it seeming so paranoid or apocalyptic, you know, I mean, since the hook of this new song itself just feels like a threat of violence to unwelcome outsiders, try that in a small town. I mean, that just lands like a threat. Now, you know, there's been a lot of debate about what Jason Aldean and those who wrote the song and directed the video actually meant to say. How do you see Intent Factory? I mean, you know, it's been widely reported that there is no evidence that he knew about the history of the courthouse in advance or that he chose the location at all, you know. But once it was brought to his attention, this historical context, I mean, he strongly resisted taking those implications seriously or acknowledging, you know, this <laughs> this introduces some other really important you know, some important context to the conversation. And this is affecting people in a very real and potentially traumatizing way, you know. And I think another thing that's important to consider is that Jason Aldean is working in a genre that is built on the power of shorthand and shared cultural references, historical references. I mean, that is a core principle of country songwriting. I would say that it is disingenuous for a country star to act like what he's saying is limited to the literal meaning of the words that he's singing. Okay, and you mentioned celebrating small town life as one of country's core themes. What's another example of that tradition? I mean, there are many, many examples, and you could look at the entire catalog of Tom T. Hall, who wrote, you know, his storytelling about people in small towns was so humanizing. And witty, and there's a song that he wrote and recorded in the 90s called Little Bitty, and Alan Jackson then had a hit on that song. And it's an example of celebrating small towns without elevating them as morally superior places and communities to cities. Have a little love on a little honeymoon. You got a little dish and you got a little spoon. A little bitty house and a little bitty yard. Okay, so how do you see this controversy fitting into the big picture? Well, there has been a, a shift over the last 20 years. I mean, after the big controversy around the chicks being booted out of the country format because of making a remark that was anti-war, then things got a little bit more polite and respectable for a time, and artists were not making their political leanings known. But that
That has obviously changed, mm-hmm. and Jason Aldean has been one of the drivers of that change. Uh, but also, you know, as as we were talking about, we're living in a moment where there are more voices that are part of the conversation, and they're really bridging the gap between what's happening in the mainstream of country and kind of the fringes and more the rootsy side of things. And I think a great example of that is Adeem the Artist uh, sort of, you know, irreverently <laughs> rewriting a parody of the Aldine song that takes the subtext of it and brings it right to the surface. Let's listen. We got no protest or civil unrest. Never took a damn COVID test. And we can all read, but we don't do it. Driving trucks valued higher than a new Corvette. Yeah, we all wear boots, and we love to shoot, and we root for the cops to stop people like you. This is a sundown town. Oh, baby, it's a sundown town. Better never let the sun go down on you here, brother, or the guns come out. That's true that I am ignorant on most of this. A couple folks, for some reason, called me a bigot, but I sweat a lot. Okay, that song there makes a point. Yeah, that is what I call spelling it out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Julie Height is Nashville Public Radio's senior music writer. You can catch her latest work at both WPLN and WNXP.org. Julie, as always, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll bring you a rebroadcast of our April 2022 episode on diversity in country music. Stay with us. This is Nashville. This is Nashville. If you look at country music videos or listen to top country music stations, you will probably not see a very diverse representation in the genre. But that doesn't mean that other voices aren't making songs and performing. My next guest has been working to highlight diverse voices in country music for decades. Frankie Staten is a singer-songwriter who led the Black Country Music Association back in the 1990s. Frankie, welcome to This Is Nashville. Well, thank you for having me. Such an honor to have you with us. Now, you've been in the game for quite some time. Tell me, what was it like for you as you tried to make your way into the country music industry? Um, It was absolutely awful um, to be a a creative person uh, that heard music running through my head 24 hours a day and trying to uh, discern if my music was as commercial or as good as what I heard on the radio, and I do believe it was. I spent many years in the Bluebird Cafe listening to the best songwriters in the city. But when I would want to pitch my songs, you could you could feel the atmosphere in the room change. And then I would go through this whole litany of questions. Why do you want to do this? This is not about you. Uh, has nothing to do with you people. And uh, one day I said, I'm getting ready to go research my history and find out. And what I found out floored me. And um, I knew 
that not only I, but many other black people had a right to be here. Um, and I responded to a story in the New York uh, News and Record that said, um, why don't you have more diversity in country music? Music Row said they don't like it. They can't sing it. It's not about them. We've looked for them. We can't find them. And so I said, okay, you're telling me one thing and the public something else, and I'm going to challenge the story. And so I had the first Black country music showcase at the Bluebird Cafe uh, in 1997. Take me back to Nashville during that time, like when the Black Country Music Association was formed. Everyone was so frustrated because we were just constantly rejected and looked at as though we were like nuts. Like, why do you, why, why would you want to sing this music? And I finally said, you know, to somebody once, I said, why don't you tell God to only give me rhythm and blues songs? If that's the situation, you know, um, I can't, I, I'm not, I can't say, well, I can only write this type of music. I can't help it if, if that's what I'm writing. And um, I, I just will never forget just being literally uh, in a publishing appointment and the man telling me to my face, you know, um, there's no way you could write a song like this. And when I look back at it, I know my gender had as much to do with it as the color of my skin, because women uh, have always been treated bad in country music. A handful would make it and the rest would just be treated like trash. And then me being a diverse woman made it even worse. So it, it was very, very hard. It was very hard. Sounds like there was a, intentionally a wall set up to prevent you from even getting close. And tell me, did you turn to icons of other musical genres for help and assistance. If you did, what was their reaction? I went to Russell Simmons. I got to Russell Simmons, to Robert Johnson, who uh, owned BET. We got an artist on uh, LA Live uh, out of uh, Los Angeles on BET. And Russell, I actually talked to Russell twice. And Russell said, Frankie, I don't know anything about country music. And I said, well, Russell, nobody knew anything about hip hop till you founded it. I actually went to the Hip Hop Summit, which was at Opryland Hotel and stood up and said, can a hip hop radio walk urban country th through your back door so we can get some airplane? They were like, who is that woman? <laughs> hmm. So yeah, I, I really exhausted every possibility. Uh, but for me to talk to label heads here, they just completely ignored me. Now, okay, so you, you, you talked to Russell Simmons, who was a co-owner of Def Jam Records, a very popular seminal hip-hop label in the 80s, and helped the genre really explode. How do you feel now about seeing artists like Lil Nas X, who has very much a country and hip-hop within his music? Well, I always knew that would happen. I said, I said, if we come into country music, it's going to be so many subcultures created that's going to be shocking. I already knew it. I saw it. It would be every kind of branding you could think of. And um, I, I, I went after that. I went after that and just could not get it. But as usual, today, the women are leading the way. And uh, to see the president of the Country Music Association, to see uh, Fram Leslie from uh CMT, so many people, Leslie Fram from CMT, work with Holly. That's, that's a wonderful thing. It's, it's a beautiful thing 
to happen. It's just that I was ahead of my time. You know, many of us don't know the many contributions that African-Americans have made to country music. And you alluded to this earlier. As you grew in the industry, after you had these experiences and you said to yourself, okay, I'm going to do my research and learn the history and your knowledge expanded. What did you learn? Oh my God. Oh my, you know, um, I am haunted by a man out of Kentucky named Arnold Schultz, who is uh, one of the greatest guitarists that ever lived, was never recorded, but was just shockingly the best they had ever seen. And his uh, thumb picking style was passed on down uh, to Merle Travis, who passed it to Chet Atkins, who passed it to millions of people. Not only did he play guitar, he was a, a fiddle virtuoso as well. Uh, and then down in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, uh, Rufus T. Todd Payne was a um, street musician who was like a one-man band, a multi-instrumentalist, and the children would follow him everywhere. And Hank Williams was eight years old when he started following Rufus and, and Hank's mom said, come over to our house, we'll feed you, we'll pay you to teach Hank to play. And little did he know this man was gonna be considered the father of country music someday. And before that, Jimmy Rogers played with the Black Railroad men. He, he was influenced uh, by them. When Bob Wills created Western Swing, he was trying to emulate Bessie Smith out of Chattanooga. Elvis Presley, was, was following uh, Sister Rosetta Thorpe. I mean, it just goes on and on. Here's Otis Blackwell writing all these number one hits and nobody knew anything about it. It's just shocking. Yeah, yeah. Holly G is still with us. Holly, I'm wondering, like, as you, what are you thinking as you hear Frankie tell us all these stories? I think that... <clears throat> It's always important for me to remind people that I'm not doing anything new and I love any opportunity where I can lift up Frankie's voice because Frankie did this work long before I was here to do it. And the only thing, the only difference between when she did it and when I'm doing it is just that I have different tools. But, you know, I try to make it very clear that, you know, I'm not like the spearhead of this movement. I, I stand on the shoulders of Frankie and all of these artists and there's so much rich history there um, that we have to pull from and build upon and I just Frankie is just amazing I'm, I'm so glad that you know we are in this space where we can work together and we can have her join us for these things I, I admire her so much how much did you know about Frankie and Cleve Francis's work in the 1990s well see this is a, the problem like that that work is not celebrated and talked about so that's something that I had to dig for to find. And, you know, I found the initial bits and pieces of it through listening to Reese Palmer. Reese is so good about highlighting our history and things like that. So I, I found out about Frankie and Cleve through Reese and, you know, just started digging through stuff and looking up what they had done. Um, and it was, I'll, I'll never forget, we were at a, um, a premiere for CMT for their Charlie Pride special and I saw Frankie and I was like oh my god that's Frankie Staten <laughs> and I walked up to introduce myself and she's like you're Holly G and I'm like how do you know who I am because <laughs> I mean it's just it's so cool to be able to exist in space with people that you look up to and can learn from and I think the biggest lesson that I've taken from Frankie is she's she taught me she says when you meet me you meet many 
And so I try to really just incorporate that and live by that in this work that we're doing and make sure that anytime, you know, I'm brought to a table, I'm bringing everybody with me. Frankie, do you remember that moment of meeting Holly? Oh, absolutely. At the Charlie Pride <laughs> Giants show. And um, I was just excited about it. And I had one of the singers uh, from the Black Country Music Association with me, Valerie Ellis. And, and Holly is like, I know, I know who both of you are. And we were looking at her like she was crazy. Like, really? If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking about country music with singer-songwriter Frankie Staten and the Black Opry founder, Holly G. I'd like to bring in my next guest to share some historical perspective with us. Amanda Marie Martinez is a doctoral student studying the country music industry from the 1970s to the 90s. She's also worked on the new documentary for Love and Country. Amanda, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be here alongside um, Holly and Frankie, of course. We're really honored to have you with us. Tell me, how did you get into your line of research? Sure. Yeah. So I, you know, I like, you know, Holly was saying also a huge country music fan, um, grew up listening to it. And I'm from uh, Northern California, from the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, and I am Mexican American, so I grew up listening to not just Mexican regional music, but also punk rock, because my mom was a punk rocker, but also country music. And my love of country music uh, really kind of grew into an obsession by the time I was in college. So as an undergrad at UC Berkeley, I started to, uh, you know, when I had to do history kind of research papers, I started to, you know, gravitate towards writing about country music because I loved it. Um, and as I did that, I grew kind of frustrated with the kind of singular narrative that existed in that scholarship, right, which was, uh, you know, the story that country music started as the music of white rural southerners. And, you know, when they moved to urban centers in the years surrounding World War II, they took their music with them and then proceeded to pass the music on to, you know, their descendants. And that's you know, the, the way that we understand the kind of huge growth of country music over the last century or so. And that was certainly, you know, not a narrative that I saw myself in. And, you know, as I eventually started, um, you know, grad school and uh, research uh, for my dissertation, it became very clear, right, that black and brown artists and fans have always been here, right? And, you know, country music is absolutely built on especially uh, blackness, right? And also, you know, this brown presence that's always been there as well. So, um, you know, it was, you know, crazy, especially the 1970s, you know, coming across all these ads, especially for black women in country music, right? That were trying to make it as black uh, country artists. Uh, so again, they've always been here, right? So for me, there was this big disconnect, um, you know, like Frankie was talking about, is like why and how has this narrative persisted when it's never been the reality? Holly, when you hear Amanda talk about the history of this industry, what comes to mind? You know, it's disappointing because the more that I learn and hear, it just makes me think about what could have been. Like if we were given the proper respect and honor 
within this industry that, you know, our ancestors earned. You know, I think about how different my relationship to country music would have been. And I think about, you know, how different, you know, Frankie's career should have been. And I think about, you know, how we could have consumed this differently in the way it just like I think about not having to do this work. Right. I, I would have been able to enjoy this music without having it be a burden. And so there's there's a, a heaviness there and a sadness, but there's also like some underlying hope there because we are having these conversations now. We do have people like Amanda that are so dedicated and committed to getting the word out there about, you know, this forgotten history. Frankie, it looks like the industry has had opportunities to truly diversify, but it resisted time and time again. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know that Valerie uh, was taken to Warner Brothers by Randy Travis's manager, and um, they gave her a developmental deal, worked with her a little while, and then decided we don't know what to do with a Black woman. We had a band um, from Lynette, Alabama, all-Black country band. I mean, you know, I could align them with groups like Diamond Rio, uh, Rio and Shenandoah and uh, Wheels was the name of the band. I've never seen anything like it. They took to the stage at one of our showcases and I literally thought I was in some major arena looking at a group of seasoned musicians, singers traveled all over the country, even in Europe and uh, had a developmental deal on Asylum Records, subsequently uh, were dropped. So there were many people uh, that were just passed over, ignored, not given a chance to tour. And they would always tell us, well, we have Charlie Pride, so we're not a racist industry. Mm-hmm. And Cleve Francis said, and I will quote Cleve again, they shook the country music tree, 30 some million black people and one brother fell out in 75 years. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me ask you, how how do our misconceptions about country music negatively impact us? Well, they negatively impact us because being that there's not a presence of diversity there, people look at us like we're crazy, like, well, why do you want to do this? You know, you know, you're looked at like you're crazy, but, but now when you see the Black Opry, that's a whole different ballgame because you understand. You know, it's not one, two, three, four, but there's six singers up here on stage. I had as many as 18 on stage at one time. So it, it negatively uh, affects specifically like somebody in the audience, like, I don't know why they're doing that. So the more they see us, the more they'll show up and support us. The more we, here's my quote, country music is off to a great start. But when all of the people in America, when all of the different diverse people get to tell their country story and sing their song, then it will come to be all that it should be. You know, Frankie, we're about to play a song of yours called Leading Lady, which I understand has some lines written by Mac Vickery. Can you tell me a little about about him? Well, I, I just heard that song in my head. I really wanted Tammy Wynette to sing it. And uh, I met Mac, I used to sing on the Ralph Emery morning show. And I met Mac and I asked him, I said, would you listen to my music? He said, I will. And he said, if it's no good, I'm going to tell you. And I played him that song. He said, oh, you wrote that? 
And he, he kept asking me to play songs. I just kept playing them songs. And he walked me into Sony and tried to get them to sign me that very morning. Mm. He said, this girl's got beautiful music. And they, of course they refused. And he was a broken man. And he said, look, I know you're a star. I was down in um, Muscle Shoals a couple of years ago. And I walked into the Alabama Songwriters Hall of Fame. I had some, was with some friends of mine from England. And the first gold record I saw was Max. And I just put my hand up against that glass and started crying. And they said, why are you crying, Frankie? And I said, because this man fought for me. And that's something you never forget. That is singer-songwriter Frankie Staten. She was joined by Holly G, creator of the Black Opry. Thank you both for joining us. Here is Frankie Staten's leading lady. If my face isn't shown on the silver screen And the world never knows my name I'm a star that I charge them all Cause sweetheart, you gave me my break And playing the part of your superstar Is worth all the pain and heartache Thanks for tuning in to this rebroadcast of our spring 2022 episode about diversity in country music. There's more coming up after the break, so stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Nashville. Colona, and this is Nashville. Earlier in the show, we talked about the lack of black voices in the country music industry, but it is a general lack of diversity within country music. There are many Native American, Latinx, and Asian American musicians vying to become recognized for the music they love performing. My next guest is Ben Park, a musician and the founder of the Shoes Off Collective, showcasing Asian-American and Pacific Islander songwriters. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Oh, my goodness. Um, I was listening in during that entire session. It's it's a real honor just listening to Holly and Frankie and you, and it's, it's a privilege being here. Thank you. Oh, we're really happy to have you with us. So talk to me. Tell me about your journey in the music industry. So I moved to Nashville a few years ago. Um, I think starting in, uh, middle school, I, um, started playing drums, guitar, I started writing songs. Um, in high school, I started busking. I got my first gig playing in a, a coffee shop. Um, and then like after graduated high school, I started playing all over my home area of Michiana, which is, uh, like the border. It's like the Michigan and Indiana area, that sort of state border. Um, so I, learned quite a bit about um, the live music industry before I moved to Nashville. And then I learned even more after I moved to Nashville. Um, 
But yeah, uh, so I've been writing songs and and performing for a while. It's um, but it's always been that, as explained in much further more elo- eloquent detail <laughs> of the previous guests, um, <laughs> that yes, there is a lack of diversity. There is an untapped market of of people in the music industry. Talk to me a little bit about that. Like when you got here, what were you seeing as you attended songwriting workshops and shows? And like, how did that affect your attitude about country music? Ironically, I didn't uh, really fall in love with country music until after I moved to Nashville, Hmm. which is not really everybody's story. Like, you know, every, like most people love country music before they move to Nashville, but like, I fell in love with the genre. Um, I like any genre that really brings that sense of community, which in this case is country music as well as various other genres. But yeah, before and after I moved to Nashville, I've always been like one of the, I've always been like the only or one of the couple Asian Americans in a music venue or at a writer's round, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and personally for me, like I don't, um, I don't use my race as a gimmick. I don't really like use my race as like part of a brand, but at the same time, I realized that I need to represent um, my ethnicity, my race, my heritage, my culture because there is such a lack of that. Is that what motivated you to create Shoes Off? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Ironically, I started this back in January. It started as um, a bunch of messages I sent on Instagram to a bunch of Asian artists I already knew or were aware of. Um, The yeses I got from that were so overwhelming to the point where instead of just making it like a small writer's round series, I decided to establish it as my own agency. It's not like an official LLC or anything like that. I hope to make it that in the in the future. But yeah, I'm booking I'm booking a tour for somebody. I'm starting uh various uh shows at various venues. Um and it's all the word I'm driven by with shoes off is equity mm-hmm. as opposed to like equality is not bad, but equity is really what gets people's foot in the door. Amanda Marie Martinez is still with us. Amanda, you gave a talk to the Center for Popular Music titled Tequila, Margaritas, and Mexican Beaches. Country music loves Latino culture, so why doesn't it include more Latinos? You know, talk to me about how country music uses Latino imagery to promote its image. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a deep history of this. I mean, uh, you know, going back to, you know, Western swing, you know, that was absolutely built on Latinx, strictly Mexican, Mexican Mexican-American sounds and and images. And, you know, you think about a career-defining song like El Paso by Marty Robbins, Um, you know, up until the present where, you know, especially, you know, one of the, the key images in country music today is the beach cowboy. And so often, you know, that beach cowboy is on a, you know, a Latin American beach, right? Where he's got his, um, 
Latina with him and, you know, uh, drinking his margarita or his tequila or et cetera, right? So, um, you know, it, it's clear that uh, country music today is absolutely building on a, a love for uh, Mexican culture um, or Latinx culture more broadly. But what is really striking about this historically is that um, there have been, you know, virtually no commercially successful Latinx artists historically. They have existed, right? Including superstars like uh, a Freddie Fender or Johnny Rodriguez. But on the whole, the statistics are really, really um, striking. You know, there's, of course, um, the scholar Jada Watson who works on um, data uh, regarding the country music charts, right? And her um, research has shown that since 1944, uh, I believe just 0.5% of uh, the songs on the, the country music charts have been recorded by Latinx artists. And of course, uh, this also gets to the gendered issue that uh, Frankie brought up because almost all of these songs were uh, recorded by men um, and just a few men, including um, uh, not just Freddie Fender, John Rodriguez, but also someone like Rick Trevino, who um, had a number of huge hits in the in the 90s. So, um, you know, it, it it tracks with a broader trend of of country music borrowing from Black culture, from uh, Latinx culture, um, Indigenous culture, and you know, not uh, supporting those individuals themselves. You know, I want to play a little bit of a song by Cat Luna and Alex Garrido. It's called Yo, Yo Quiero Amarte. No temas, quiero ayudarte. Yo quiero, yo quiero, yo quiero amarte. Enseñame, solo quiero amarte. Amanda, tell us about what Kat and Alex are trying to do in country right now. Yeah, I mean, Kat and Alex are, you know, an excellent duo, uh, uh, being uh, Cuban and Puerto Rican, um, a contemporary artist. And, you know, it's incredible what they do, right, where they um, sing songs and, uh, you know, country songs in Spanish, right? And and they, they kind of gain traction by doing that, you know, through social media. Um, and now they are, um, you know, recording those songs, their, their own songs in both English and Spanish. Um, and I absolutely hope that it catches on. Um, there's, there's always been those listeners, that demographic there. Um, but, you know, uh, we'll have to wait and see, right? This is not the first time uh, this has been tried before. Uh, I just mentioned Rick Trevino in the 90s, and he is someone uh, who also recorded uh, his songs in both English and Spanish. Um, and that is not something, you know, unfortunately that caught on after that. So um, I'm hopeful this time is different, but, you know, it's also striking to me, also just thinking about, you know, listening to Holly and Frankie talk where, you know, the industry has felt um, this pressure before, right? And things haven't changed. So I'm just hopeful in this instance um, that 
things do change for the good. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kaliole Colonna. My guests are Ben Park and Amanda Marie Martinez. We're talking this hour about the growing push to bring more diversity into the country music industry. You know, in, we were talking earlier about representation and the idea of equal opportunity versus equity. Ben, you mentioned that. I want you to go into that a little bit deeper on your thoughts. I believe equity is more important than equality. Like, I want to incorporate both, but I believe equity is more important than equality just because of that issue of representation and that untapped market of artists who want to play the same genres that predominantly white people dominate. But um, there might be a stigma that, like, not enough Asian people or not enough there are not enough black country artists. And then like the ones that are successful are more or less tokenized or like they're not intention. I don't think they're intentionally tokenized, but they're still tokenized in execution like uh, Jimmy Allen or Breland. Um, but that's exactly why I lean towards equity as opposed to equality, because um, it's not just the non-white artists versus the overwhelming white artists, but it's also um, the equity I want to bring to communities within the AAPI community. And for those who don't know that acronym, that stands for Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, especially after the Atlanta shootings last year, everything that has been dwelling in the very back of my mind about the way that Asian women are treated in America, how people perceive me. Ever since Atlanta, all that really came to the forefront, and I believe it shouldn't have taken the deaths of human beings to really get me to get on my two feet. The point I'm trying to get at is that um, it's I could easily like book predominantly like pale-skinned East Asian men, but I recognize that within the AAPI community, like. Southeast Asians and like Pacific Islanders have faced their own form of discrimination like outside of America. It's that colorism that is especially dominant. I, I grew up, I'm Korean American. Like I was born in Chicago, grew up in Michigan, um, moved to Nashville. Like I am definitely not a brown Asian by any means. And I have to also recognize my own privilege as well. It's not just equity in terms of like bringing more non-white artists uh, to more mainstream stages, but also um, more uh, Southeast Asians, more Pacific Islanders. Like I actively try to hunt out for specific uh, Pacific Islander artists as well. Mm -hmm. You know, Amanda, I want to end with you. You know, what do you want people listening to us today to walk away with? Yeah, well, you know, oftentimes people kind of ask me, you know, why I'm attacking country music. And I absolutely don't see it that way, right? Because I'm, I'm coming to this from a place of love, right? This is something I really love. And I think, you know, touching on, you know, what Holly was talking about earlier, um, which to me is the real paradox of country music, that it has this ability to be this such an in inclusive, beautiful space, right? You know, also um, thinking about the work that Ben is doing as well. Um, and of course, Frankie uh, was doing uh, before all of us. Um, you know, that, that it represents this paradox that 
it has always had this very, very broad appeal along, you know, not just racial lines, but also class, region, age. Uh, age is a big one for popular music, right? Where you don't, most types of music are maybe associated with youth culture, um, but country music has always had um, listeners across all of these spheres, right? So it has such this beautiful, inclusive potential, even though it has been marketed in such an exclusionary way. So I think that that is what, you know, I hope people uh, take from this, right? About the kind of radical potential of country music. That's country music historian, Amanda Marie Martinez. She was joined by musician, Ben Park. Thank you both for being with us today. It's been a pretty musical hour. So we're gonna go out today with a song by Daniel Kim Etheridge. He's a Korean American artist. He wrote Tired of Rising Above, in part as a reaction to the shootings in Atlanta in which six women of Asian descent were killed. Let's listen. If everything was equal, like they say inside the steeple, I wouldn't have to fight twice as hard for half as much. Playing fields were level, I wouldn't do deals with the devil. I wouldn't have to turn my cheek and die at death by a thousand cuts. Running out of rope, enough's enough. I'm getting tired of Thanks for joining us for this rebroadcast. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Elizabeth Burton, Magnolia McKay, and Char Dastin. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Shout out to all the musicians behind the country music we heard today. Cat Luna. Alex Garrido, Frankie Staten, and Daniel Kim Etheridge. The conversation doesn't end here. You can tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other. Everything's equal, like they say inside that steeple. I wouldn't have to fight twice as hard for half as much. Playing fields were level, I wouldn't do deals with the devil. I wouldn't have to turn my cheek and die at death by a thousand cuts. Running out of rope enough so much. Well, I'm getting tired of rising above. One day I'll have kids that look like me. Everything was equal, like they say inside that steeple. I wouldn't have to fight twice as hard for half as much. If playing fields were level, I wouldn't do deals with the devil. I wouldn't have to turn my cheek and die at death by a thousand cuts. I'm running out of rope, enough's enough.